Um, a woman of about my age was at a, uh, a business meeting in town at a local hotel, and at about 10.30 or so, they had a break, and she realized that she couldn't find her keys. So she started to look through her purse and was wondering where it was and was patting herself down, trying to figure this out. And then she began to get a little bit frantic and started to walk out to the parking lot because she remembered this debate that she had with her husband. And uh, it kind of went like this. She had often left her keys in the ignition, and her husband had said, hey, that's a good way for your car to get stolen. And for her, she said, no, that's where I, where I won't lose my keys. They're always in my ignition. So as she wandered out to the parking lot, her worst fears were realized, and she realized the car was not there. So she, uh, she called the police and gave them all the particulars so that they could start working on this. And then she went back into her meeting, and she started dreading the fact that she was going to have to call her, her husband and tell him all this. So there was a lunch break, and she said, okay, it's time to call him and, and let him know this. And uh, she, with trepidation, called him up and, and said, hey, honey, which is what she always said when she was trying to be obsequious and submissive. And she said, honey, i got to tell you something. That debate that we always have about where the car key should be, you were right, and I left my keys in the ignition, and the car's been stolen. And then the line just went dead, uh, so much so that she thought that perhaps the call had been dropped. And then a few seconds went by, and her husband barked back at her, Are you kidding me? Don't you remember I dropped you off this morning? <laughs> then she realized that she was now humiliated and humbled and had to do this even more. And, and she said, well, then, honey, can I ask you, will you come and, and pick me up? And he said, yeah, sure, as soon as I convinced this cop standing next to me that I didn't steal your car. <laughs> now, the reason I say that is because this intro to worldview, I think I've done this probably a few times here. And when Chris first said that we could do this lecture, I thought, okay, I'm going to do something new. But then as John and I talked, I thought, no, nah, this is probably a good intro to this, so I'll do it again. And then I thought, there's probably a lot of people who've never heard this before, and so for them it'll be completely new. And for all of you who are like my age, it'll be like the first time that you've ever heard it before. So uh, here we go. And we're going to, talk, we're, going to, we're going to cover a lot of ideas here. Uh, I, Chris, there's about nine different points, um, which you can try to write down as we go through this if you'd like. But if uh, you'd like to talk to me afterwards about any of this stuff, I'd be glad to do that too. So this is called Intro to Worldview. And when I first started teaching uh, in the public schools about 35 years ago, nobody even knew this word and used this word worldview. And now you hear it pretty commonly. Uh, and we're just going to go through about nine different points about what Christian worldview is. And it's going to be a little bit interactive. I'm going to ask you some stuff. And so feel, to, feel free to, to just kind of yell stuff back at me. So let's go ahead and jump into this. And Chris, you can hit the first slide. Uh, the Barna organization is over in California, and you may know that they're a Christian polling organization. And back in 2003, they were trying to figure out who out there actually had a Christian worldview. Now, I suppose you could be you know, picky about what actually constitutes that, but this is the way that they did it for the purposes of their poll. They had these two main points, that absolute moral truth exists and that that truth is defined in the Bible. And then if people wanted more specifics, they went to these six, th six things below, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that God is still ruling the universe today as in control of everything, that salvation is a gift from God that cannot be earned, uh, that uh, Satan is real, all right, a real enemy out there, and that Christians have a responsibility to share the Great Commission and share their faith, uh, faith in Christ with others, and that the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. And they called around the country trying to figure out who actually believed these things. And what I want to ask you right now is what percentage of the American population at large 
says that they believe these things? Anybody want to take a guess? What percentage of the American population says that they believe those things right there? 20%. It's lower than 20%. 7%. It's lower than 7%. 4%. 4 so the national average was 4%, okay? And if you're wondering about California, they're right at 4%. They were fairly normal. Uh, the states that had the highest biblical worldview were Texas and North Carolina. And the ones that had the lowest were Louisiana and, very curiously, the original New England states. All right, uh, And I'm not quite sure why that is. You could probably guess some things. Uh, but that's what, uh, what they found out in this poll. Now, it's very interesting because as they did this, a lot of people self-identified as Christians. And when, Barna, when the Barna organization said we're doing this, a lot of people said, oh, I am a Christian. You know, I'm born again. I have been saved by Christ. I have experienced you know, a renewal in my life because of the shed blood of Christ. And they weren't really expecting this, but a number of these people self-identified as Christians. And here's my question for you now. Of those people who self-identified as Christian, how many believe these things? What percentage believe these things? And you want to say, like, 100%, right? Because these things are just basic tenets of orthodoxy here that are not real controversial, I don't think. But what percentage do you think of the self-identifying Christian population said they believe these things? It's, fortunately, it's higher than 4%. It's higher than the average. It's 9%. 9%. Okay. Now, curiously, I just went on Wikipedia today, and supposedly 75% of our country says that they are Christian. Uh, and yet, when you ask them, do you believe these things, only 9% of the people who say that uh, actually say they believe these things. So there's a crisis in worldview that's happening in our age, and we need to kind of talk about why that is. And that's how we're going to get into this whole idea of what worldview is all about. So let's go to the next one, and this is very simply a definition of what worldview is, and it's your framework for understanding existence, and that's very simply all that it is. And when you're a little kid and you're starting to develop consciousness, you start to deal with reality out there, and I would say that you kind of formulate worldview as far as the why questions of life, whenever this starts to happen. Uh, you know, why do bad things happen? Why do people die? Um, why do I have thoughts in my head? Why do I believe that those thoughts in my head are reliable? And at some point, you're kind of formulating the answers to these questions, and perhaps your parents are giving you good answers, and those things are sticking. But, but what happens is you start to develop this framework for understanding reality, and then basically everything you do is based upon this framework. All your interactions with reality kind of go through this grid of how you think about these things. So very simply, it's simply a framework for understanding existence, and that's point number one, and that's all there is to that point. Go ahead to the next one. Second thing is that everyone has a worldview whether they know it or not. And the icon that we like to show for this is a filing cabinet because you all have a worldview whether you've ever thought about it or not. And one thing that I like to say is that, you know, if uh, we took a pitcher from the, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks and we took their best ace pitcher and we put him 90 feet back here and we gave him a bucket full of balls and I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start pitching fastballs at everybody's head out here. All right, here's my question for you. If you have a 93-mile-an-hour fastball coming at your head, what do you do? Get hit. You could get hit. Hey, Miles, how are you doing? All right, what, what, what do you probably do? do you, and, and, and here's my question. Do you have to cognitively do something? Do you have to say, small orb traveling through space at high rate of speed, I had better duck? Or do you just naturally do it? You know to get out of the way. All right, and here's my question. How do you know to get out of the way of that fastball? Fear of what? Fear of getting in the head, hit in the head. And someone said experience, Mike. 
Okay, you experienced pain before because of what? Okay, and what's, what, what, in particular, what in particular is happening to you that's given you pain that you know is about to happen again? A physical object, okay? Getting hit by physical objects hurt, especially when they're traveling at a high rate of speed, okay? All right, now, inherent in that answer there is this idea that you already have a worldview assumption in place, and that's this. Physical stuff is real. And I would guess that all of you in here believe that physical reality is real, and you maybe have never thought about that at all. And perhaps you have in a more conscious way. Because there usually is, in a group like this, one or two people who have actually had a moment where they were walking through their house, you know, and they bumped into something, and they're like, ow, you know, that hurt, and that's physical, and my knee is physical, and heck, I've never thought about this before, but wow, physical stuff is real. Has anybody in here ever had that? Okay. All right, so nobody has. And sometimes you have a few who have had this. But here's the point. You all have a worldview presupposition in place that you act upon every day of your life, and you never even thought about it. All right, that's number one. Here's a hard one, though. Is non-physical reality real? Is God real? Is spirit real? Is soul real? If these things cannot be touched, can't be seen, can't be cut open, can't be put under a microscope, why the heck would we think that they're real? And yet, my guess is that probably most of you think that non-physical reality is real, too. So what we need to do is kind of be a little bit more open about these things and wonder why we think these things in a more conscious way. And that's kind of what we're trying to do in this worldview uh, little grouping that we're doing here, is to get you to think more consciously about these things that we base our entire lives upon. Okay? Uh, second one I want to ask you is this, because this is another worldview presupposition you have. Let's say, and I'm going I'm to appeal to the men here, think back to when you were about 10 years old, men, wherever you lived, you know, whether it was here or in the Midwest or whatever, you were walking home from school one day and you came across a dead animal on the side of the road or down by the creek or whatever. All right, 10-year-old man, all right, I'd like you all to yell this out simultaneously because usually it's a pretty common answer. When you saw that dead animal by the creek, what did you do with it? Yes, poke it with a stick is the correct answer, all right? All right, that's the correct answer, and that's why I like to collectively do that, because usually you're like, you know, sometimes the women are like, really, you poke it with a stick? But sometimes the women poke it with a stick, too. All right, so here's this thing. You poke a dead animal with a stick. All right, now let's replace that. Let's say that you're walking home from school, same situation, except now you come across a dead human body. What do you do? Okay, you might check for a pulse, you might give it wide berth. I mean, if you know for sure this is a dead human body, you stay far away and you probably notify the authorities. Now, again, implicit in this is this idea that you think human beings are different from all other animals on this planet, and it's different in some way. And maybe you've had this conscious realization where you've thought about this, maybe you haven't, but you behave upon that assumption every day. And this is kind of the way worldview is. So the reason we have a filing cabinet is because you have had all kinds of experiences in your life that you've basically tucked away back into a filing cabinet. You act upon these things all the time, whether or not you've ever thought about them. And so it's a very good idea to think more consciously about these things so that we know that we're lining up with the way that reality, in fact, really is. Next one, Chris. A well-rounded worldview um, includes answers to each of the following questions. And again, some people will break this down to a few more questions. Some people will reduce it to two. But basically, it is these things right here. What is prime reality? The really real. Is physical stuff real? I think we all think that it is. Is non-physical stuff real? How do you know? All right, and as Christians, we should have an answer to this. Second, what is a human being? 
Um, are we made in the image of God, as the Bible tells us, or the current worldview is that we're highly complex electrochemical beings who have evolved over millions of years of time? That's a very different view, all right, and, and yet it's a very dominant worldview out there. What happens to a person when we die? Do we just become food for worms and we fade away, or is there something that lives on after we die? And again, people have always wondered about this. How do we know what's right and wrong? Is there right and wrong? Is there some basis for ethics, and how do we know? Because you believe this, and I believe that, and it's kind of cool no matter what we believe, right? And we hear a lot of this these days. And then finally, what is the meaning of human history? And the way that I like to say this is, what am I here for? And perhaps all of you at some point in your life, like I did when I think I was probably a junior or senior in high school, I looked at myself in a mirror, and I said, okay, I'm Jay, and I'm so tall, and I look like this, but... Who am I? I mean, what am I here for? What am I supposed to be doing with myself? I mean, I feel like I'm supposed to be important in some way, and I don't know what the heck it is. So it's this whole idea of what are, what are we here for as humans, and what, is, what are our lives about? So I would say that these are the basic questions of worldview. You can actually reduce these to two questions, the nature of God and the nature of man, if you'd like to make it more simple, but that breaks it down a little bit more. And for 35 years in the public schools, and I'm in a Christian school now, but basically I've been teaching all these things, and the main reason is because the classic works of literature or philosophy or art or the humanities are always dealing with these questions where someone's positing an idea about one of these things right here. So they're very, very important, and through, for thousands of years people have wondered what the answers to these questions are. They're, they're at the very heart of our being. Next one, Chris. I usually just sit for a second and see if anybody laughs at this. Don't worry, Howard. The big questions are multiple choice. Um, this is a guy named Howard, and I assume that Howard is probably a busy executive who has not had time to think about these worldview questions. And he's coming home, and he's talking to his wife, and he's probably concerned because he's halfway through his life, and he's like, you know, I don't know this stuff. Um, and by the way, there are a number of family therapists who have told me that essentially a midlife crisis, something experienced by middle-aged white guys typically, uh, is something that you experience because you have kind of gotten halfway through your life. You're in your 50s or 60s or whatever. You have your job. You have your family. You have your house. You have your white picket fence. You have your SUV. You have your golden retriever. You have all this stuff, and you don't know what your life is all about. And most of these people that I know that are family therapists say, essentially, a midlife crisis is getting halfway through your life. You've garnered all the stuff that American life is supposed to give you, and you don't know what you're here for. You don't know what your life is all about. You have not dealt with these worldview questions. And my guess is that Howard is probably concerned about this, and that's kind of what he's voicing to his wife. And she says, don't worry, Howard, the big questions are multiple choice. You're going to get to the end of your life. It's going to be like an A, B, C, D thing, you know, and it's going to be a 25% chance of guessing it right. Well, I would suggest otherwise that these are very difficult questions, that for your entire life you need to think about these things, and you want to line up with the way that reality is, because we call that wisdom. And I hope that Howard gets to that point. Next one, third point. It's okay to have the answers, but make sure you're seeing clearly. And the, the icon that we use for this is glasses, because if you have some kind of a sight problem and you go to an uh, optometrist or an ophthalmologist and he gives you a prescription for glasses and they don't help you to see reality clearly, would you go back to this guy? If your glasses that he prescribes for you don't help you see things clearly? And worldview is much the same way. It should help you see reality clearly. 
And I would suggest that all worldviews, kind of like a stopped clock, are right a couple times a day. And with certain aspects of reality, they will help you see clearly. But I also want to suggest to you that a Christian worldview helps you see all of reality clearly all the time. And that's why we should dig in deeply to it, because it explains the nature of reality as God has given to it, given it to us. Next slide. I cut this out because this is normally a very long lecture, and so I wanted to cut out something that was uh, long, and this was a clip from The Truman Show. Has anybody ever seen the movie The Truman Show? Okay, it's, it's a wonderful worldview movie because it talks about this idea of how we tend to believe whatever's held in front of us all the time. And if you know the story of The Truman Show, Truman Burbank is his name, which is interesting because he's interested in truth, and yet Burbank is where Hollywood is. And, and basically, Truman Burbank lives in this giant dome in Hollywood where they've created this false reality for him, and thousands of cameras watch him all day long. Everyone knows that they're acting out this drama around Truman's life, and they know that they're actors in this. But the only one that doesn't know this is Truman himself. And that's why the show is interesting, because people are thinking, will Truman ever figure this out? Well, when you watch The Truman Show, Truman has had some rather strange things happening in his life, and those things are making him, making him question the nature of reality. And I would suggest that if you've ever dealt very profoundly with these worldview questions, it's probably been when you were in a time of crisis, when someone died or when someone was in an accident, and you were like, wow, God, are you there? I mean, why would you do this? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there death? And this is when we deal with these questions when we're in crisis in this way. And basically what happens in the show is that Truman starts to figure out what is true because he questions the nature of this very false reality. And as you watch the show, people are cheering for him to get out, and it's really kind of a cool metaphor for how truth is a freeing thing. But it's very interesting because at one point in the show where you're st finally starting to figure out what's going on, and this is a very weird movie because about you can watch about half of it and think, what the heck is going on here? And then finally it all starts to make sense. But at one point they're, offering, they're, they're uh, talking to this guy, Christoph, who is the producer of the show, and it says, Christoph, let me ask you, why do you think that Truman has never come close to discovering the true nature of his world until now? And Truman is in his 30s or so. How, how come he's never figured out reality? And Christoph says this really profound thing. We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. In other words, Truman believes this because we hold this in front of him all the time, and it's what he's told to be true, and he believes it's true, and so he believes it's true, even though it's a complete lie. And I want to suggest that this is the way all of life is. We have all kinds of things being held in front of us all the time that we just accept as true because they're there all the time that may or may not be true. And that's why we need to be very discerning in this way, which I think takes us to our next point, which is number four. Everything comes at us from a worldview perspective because nothing humans touch remains neutral. And I'm not trying in giving this lecture because I, I work with a group called Worldview Academy and we do this during the summer. And we're not trying to spoil your fun, but you do need to understand, and I'm not a conspiratorialist too much, but I do believe that we are in the midst of a huge conspiracy going on between good and evil that there is God, that there are angels, that there was a Satan who rebelled against him, that there are demons, that there is a spiritual battle going on right now. We're in the redemptive process of this. And guess what? We're right in the middle of all this. And what that means is all kinds of information that's coming at us may be true, it may not be true. And if, in fact, there is a deceiver who would like to lie to us and uh, have us experience a life that is separated from God, guess what? He's out there, too, putting out information that will also maybe mislead us. So even though I don't believe in conspiracies a lot, I do believe in that conspiracy, and we're in the midst of all that all the time. 
What that means is that we need to be discerning about everything that comes our way when we watch a movie, when we have conversations, when we read the newspaper, when we watch the news, because things may or may not be true that are coming our way. Next slide. C.S. Lewis said it this way, every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And guess what? We're right in the middle of all that all the time. So we need to be thinking about this. Thank you, Chris. All right. Uh, let me go back to about 1647, and we're talking about this question, what is the purpose of, of human existence? What are we here for? And back during this time in Europe, you had a, a basically Judeo-Christian worldview that was dominant, and you would have heard this because it was all around you, and it was the dominant worldview at this time. So if you'd ask this question, what am I here for, back during that time, chances are very good that someone around you or someone in your church would have said something from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Anybody familiar with this today? Because it's still a great source of, wow, really solid, truthful information. Well, the Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In other words, God has made you, he has gifted you with passions and gifts and uh, things that you love doing, and they kind of are the blueprint of your life, and he gave them to you from birth, and he wants you to use these things not only for your good pleasure, but to glorify him. And so that's kind of what we're all in the image of God about, and he wants us to use these gifts for him. So that's the kind of thing you probably would have heard because it was a dominant worldview held in front of you all the time back then. But you have to realize that worldviews shift, and we live in a very different time period where we think very differently about these things, and now something new is being held up in front of us, and that's this. This is Carolyn Hacks, and this is back in 2001, but you may recognize her as an advice columnist, kind of like a modern-day Dear Abby. And back then, a kid in high school wrote to her and said, you know, high school is kind of boring. I don't quite know what I'm doing. I read all these books. I take tests, and I'm supposed to kind of know what my life is all about, but I don't. So he essentially said, Carolyn, can you tell me what life is all about? And her answer was this, growing up is to discover not the meaning of life, because cover your eyes if you don't want me to spoil the ending. There isn't one. There is no reason for you to be alive. This is kind of this weird chance accidents of the universe, and we need to kind of figure this out. And if you do figure something out, good for you. You've done a good job because there is no one purpose for us that is you know, the same for all of us. This is a very different message that you hear a lot in the world today. And again, it has a lot to do with the fact that there's a different and dominant worldview today. Next one. Bruce Willis, Parade Magazine, What Happens After Death? And again, people throughout history have wondered about this, and clearly we've thought that there is some kind of afterlife because of the nature of our conscious existence. But Bruce Willis says at the end here in the bold print, the only thing we have is to be alive in the moment. People think we're going to live forever. I know we don't. Now, Bruce Willis gets to say this kind of stuff because he's rich and he's famous and we pay attention to celebrities and let them have, you know, a soapbox in our culture. But you've got to realize that these people are speaking worldview ideas into your life, which may or may not be true. Next one. I don't even know if Parade Magazine is in the paper anymore. I quit getting the, the star. Is it still in there? Okay. All right. And I used to take it out simply because there's always so many good worldview ideas. And again, it's usually rich, famous Hollywood movie stars who are telling you their worldview ideas. But I used to kind of look at them and say, do I agree with this? Is this true? Is this bogus? And it's very interesting that there's a lot of really, really bad ideas out there all the time that are held in front of us. And again, if we're not discerning about it, we'll tend to believe it because it's held in front of us all the time. This is uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. And she is talking in this edition of Parade Magazine how she learned to trust her heart. A good idea? Why not a good idea? Above all things, who can know it? All right, 
But she says, trust in it. So you may say, wow, that helped Michelle. Maybe I should trust my heart too. But again, are you thinking about stuff like this? Are we discerning about these ideas that come our way? Because we tend not to be. Like Truman, we tend to believe it because it's held in front of us all the time. And a lot of this is held in front of us. Jack Nicholson, I know that uh, we all think he's a pretty cool guy. He says, I make my own rules. A good idea from a biblical point of view. Well, if God actually is the author of the universe, I would say no, because first of all, if we all made our own rules, we'd have complete chaos. Uh, and also, if you're going against a God who is you know, the author of all things, you probably do well to pay attention to him in that way. So this is the kind of thing that we need to think about. With all this stuff coming at us, are we taking the time to discern whether these things are true and hold up to the truth of biblical revelation? This is a guy named Carl Sagan. And how many remember Cosmos back in the 80s? few people that we got remember that. This was really a big deal. He was a very famous Cornell astronomer, um, and he wrote this book, Cosmos, had a series that played on Sunday night uh, called that, and people would come in on Monday morning and talk about Cosmos on TV and how cool a show this was. Now, you may not know that Carl Sagan is an atheist, uh, but he was, and uh, you know, we, we, we kind of watched this a lot and we were influenced by it, and probably one of the big slogans that came out of this was this quote right here, the cosmos, the physical universe, is all there is or was or ever will be, all right? Now, implicit in that is the idea that there are no non-physical realities. He's implying here there's no God, there's no spirit, there's no soul, there's only the physical stuff of the cosmos. Now, if you're a discerning adult and you're thinking about this, you may say, wow, that's a pretty uh, worldview-laden statement that he has just laid on us, and I maybe need to think about that a little bit, okay? And I'm not sure how many people did that, uh, but what I discovered a few years later was something very, very curious. Next one, Chris. And that's when I was reading this particular book to my kids, and it is the Berenstain Bears Nature Guide, all right? We have any Berenstain Bears fans out there or at least familiar with the Berenstain Bears? Okay. And somebody has told me that they're Christians. I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but I've heard that. But uh, when I was reading this to my kids, I came across this very interesting definition of what nature is, according to Stan and Jan Berenstain, and it says this. Nature is the world of animals from the biggest whale to the smallest flea. It's the world of plants from the tiniest weed to the tallest tree. It's the earth itself, the rocks and soil, and from under the earth come coal and oil. Thank you, Chris. Nature's every person, thing, and place here on Earth and out in space. Nature's the sun, the moon, the stars. It's faraway planets like Venus and Mars. It's the mountains, the valley, the shore, the sea. Nature is you. Nature is me. It's all that is or was or ever will be. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Well... I don't know if it's great minds thinking alike or if it's just an incredible coincidence or what, but you'll notice that both Papa Bear, Berenstain, and Carl Sagan say almost exactly verbatim the same thing. Nature is all that is or was or ever will be, and the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be. All right? Now, what do you think happened here? Do you think this is a coincidence? I don't. I think the Berenstains probably said, you know what, we don't know a whole lot about nature. We need to defer to the authority. And at that time, it was, it was uh, Carl Sagan because everybody was crazy about him. And so I think they probably thought, if we say something like what Carl Sagan said, we're probably safe. All right, now here's the thing. If you are a discerning adult and you're listening to Carl Sagan, you might say, wow, there was a lot of worldview in what he said that I disagree with. But if you're a four-year-old and you're sitting on your mama's knee listening to this, are you realizing that you're being fed false worldview? 
that nature is all there is or was or ever will be. It is all over the place. It comes at you on a daily basis, and if you're not discerning about it, you will tend to believe whatever is held up in front of you all the time, even from your little book that your mama reads to you when you're going to bed at night. All right? It's all over the place. Next one. Ideas have consequences. Uh, this idea that we think a certain way, it plays out in real life. Uh, and if you've studied history or uh, literature or philosophy or art history or any of these things, you can see that these ideas have consequences. Next slide. Um, the place that I first learned this was when I read uh, Francis Schaeffer's stuff back in the 1970s. And for me, it was incredibly hard to wade through his stuff. You know, and sometimes it would take me days reading the same two pages over and over again trying to figure out what he was talking about. But what he basically said, and you can do all of them, Chris, he says that worldview begins in philosophy, in these deep questions of life that we want to know the answers to. But generally speaking, within five to ten years, people who are on the cutting edge of thinking, artists and people who are writing books and doing music, they want to kind of reflect the cutting edge, edge thinking that they've read in philosophy, <clears throat> and so often they will show it in their works. Okay? And then finally, within 75 to 100 years, all this stuff kind of leaks down to the general culture at large. A good example of this is when uh, Carolyn Hack says, you know, that there is no purpose in life. You simply got to figure out what you can on your own. That's basically existentialism from the late 19th century. And it's so pervasive today that we kind of say stuff like that, not realizing it's philosophy that's, that has its rootedness 100 years back. All right, and that's kind of how this happens. So it may be that you pick up your worldview through art, literature, and music, but generally most of us pick it up from that culture that's all around us all the time. And again, realize that we live in a culture that is not very godly in any way, and it's not trying to convince us that there is a God who rules the universe. Next one. If we went back to this question of what a human being is, and we looked again at the, the 1600s when Shakespeare, who really was very, very influenced by a Christian worldview, uh, was writing Hamlet, you get this idea. What is a human being? It says, and this is uh, speaking about what, well, what human beings are. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. So basically what Shakespeare is saying here is human beings are the top of the created order. They're like nothing else on this planet. And that's very biblical because we are blown, you know, we have the, the, the breath of God blown into us and we are made in his image and it doesn't say that about any other creature on the planet. And yet you'll know if you read Shakespeare, especially his tragedies, that at the end of every Shakespearean tragedy, what do you have all over the place? Dead people, all right? All right, you got dead people, and that's because our, our tragic heroes, uh, Macbeth, Hamlet, Othello, whoever, he, even though they're nobler people than we are, they have this tragic flaw that leads not only to their downfall, but to the downfall of others. So in other words, what Shakespeare is saying here is we're sinful, and because of stupid things that we do in our sinfulness, we have consequences that play out, and we die, and other people around us die, and it's a mess. And yet you also have this idea in tragedy that you can read this and learn from this and not make the same mistake. A tragedy actually means a goat song at Trigoidios. And what this means is, you know, Hamlet's the goat that gets sacrificed. You're the scapegoat that gets to escape because you realize something true about the nature of things. So amazingly, you have a very biblical worldview here that says, you know what? 
uh, human beings are amazing, and yet in their fallenness they do stupid things, and yet God is a redemptive God who is still able to pull us up out of the slime and make good things happen, even though bad things seem to be happening a lot. So that's a very, very biblical worldview that you get from Shakespeare. Now I want to come into the 20th century, and you get a very different idea here about what a human being is. And again, realize this is now what's been held up in front of us for the past 150 years or so, and it answers this question about what a human being is very differently. This is Ernest Hemingway, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. It's about a four-page short story. You can read it in five minutes. It's really a great dose of this kind of thinking. What did he fear? It was not fear or dread. It was a nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing, and a man was nothing too. Our nada, who art in nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, in nada as it is in nada. So he takes the Lord Prayer and he inserts what word into there? Nothing. So what are you as a human being? You're a nothing. You are a chance occurrence of the universe. And this is the Hemingway Code. How many people have read Hemingway out there? All right, and what have you read? Just yell it out. Sun also rises, old man the sea. For whom the bell tolls, okay? Yeah, and by the way, if you ever have read these things, and after you've got done, you're like, what the heck is this book about? You don't know what you're reading. I mean, that's because he has a very dark, nihilistic view of the universe that says we're all a nothing. That the best that you can do is endure the nada of the universe. It will chew you up. It will spit you out. And if you endure this as a man by showing grace and courage in the face of this, then you've shown yourself worthy in the face of nada. So how do you live life meaningfully, according to Hemingway? You stand up to the nada of the universe with courage and grace and style. If you've ever read The Old Man of the Sea, this man has not caught a fish for 85 days, finally catches the biggest fish of his life. It drags him way out into the ocean because it's huge. Um, he basically physically annihilates himself trying to pull this thing in. Then what happens? The sharks attack and wipe it out, and then when he, at the very end, pulls into the harbor, he has an 18-foot-long skeleton alongside of his boat. He goes up into his little hut, and with arms outstretched like Christ, he lays down on his cot and goes to sleep, and there's the implication that he dies the end. And you're like, what the heck am I reading this book for? I mean, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for it. You know? And so you're like, what, what's going on here? Well, again, here's a man who shows courage, and style and grace in the face of the meaninglessness of the universe. And that's what Hemingway's code always is in every book that he ever writes. So if you get that, then you understand what Hemingway's saying. Now, people will say it's interesting that he's trying to make meaning of a meaningless universe. That's true because people do that. But this is now the world that we live in. It's this nihilistic, you're a chance accent of the universe world. It's a very different world, and we are exposed to this all the time. Let's go. Music shows this also. That's how literature kind of shows this shift, all right? If you go back 400 years when we had a dominant Christian worldview, you have people like Johann Sebastian Bach who wrote Sola Gloria Dei, you know, for the glory of God alone. And he believed that music actually showed in its rhythm and harmony and melody the nature of God's universe and that this is the way God has made things. It's the music of the spheres. And so he said everything goes back to God in this way because he believed that God had made everything. If you come in the 20th century, you get a new guy, and his name is John Cage, and you probably maybe heard about him before. Uh, he said, we live in a chance universe that's an accidental universe. And so basically what he did is he would use Chinese stones and sticks to, by chance, compose music. 
Um, and he went so far as to, you know, have like two conductors on a stage at once conducting various orchestras, you know, at the same time so that you basically have noise and then people are getting up and leaving and walking out. And he says, no, you don't understand. This is the music of life. It's chance. It's accidental. It's, it's life. And people don't like it. All right. Another thing that he did was uh, something called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, and uh, I saw him perform this once at Central Park in New York um, in, a, in a video, and he had a big uh, grand piano out there, and he came out in a tuxedo, uh, and he sat down at the grand piano, and he took out a stopwatch, and he clicked it, and for four minutes and 33 seconds, he does absolutely nothing. He moves his hands three times, because there's three different movements of this, but nothing happens. Now, what's going on while this is happening? I mean, what's the crowd doing? What do you think? What would you do? All right, some people booed. That's happened before. Uh, some people are kind of nudging each other and saying, what's going on? Is he stroking out? I mean, should we do something? Is he okay? All right, I mean, nobody really knows what happens, okay? Now, what, what John Cage would say is that this is chance music and that whatever you happen to do by chance while he is doing nothing up there during the three movements of four minutes and 33 seconds, that is the chance music that I intended. Now, you may think this sounds crazy, but his entire career was him doing this kind of thing. If you click onto YouTube, you can find all kinds of different renditions of 4 minutes and 33 seconds where absolutely nothing happens. Right now, in fact, the first thing that will come up if you go home and look at this tonight is there is a full orchestral version of 4 minutes and 33 seconds performed by an orchestra with a full audience. And then afterwards, it's a riot to listen to it because they're like, oh, this was really an amazing moment to experience this. And nothing <laughs> happens during the entire thing. Now, curiously, when he did, one, did the one in Central Park, what happens is after four minutes and 33 seconds, he clicked the watch, he got up, he stood next to the piano, and he bowed. Now, the audience now doesn't know what to do, and so some of them are like, okay, somebody starts to clap, and pretty soon they start clapping, and then soon everybody's clapping, and then he walks away. Now, this may seem like crazy stuff to you, but you have to realize that the dominant worldview says we live in a chance existence. It all happened kind of accidentally, and therefore we have to kind of make the best meaning of it that we can in whatever way we might do that. And John Cage is a classic example of this. Now, we don't hear too much about these guys because you probably don't go home and, like, you know, put on John Cage to listen to because it's so depressing, but this is what's being said philosophically about the nature of our existence. Next one. This is the Pieta by Michelangelo, and when I was a nine-year-old kid, I went to the World's Fair in New York City, and I saw this for the first time, and I was blown away by this, which is really quite astounding because when you're a nine-year-old kid and you go to a fair, you're thinking food, and uh, at this time, that's when um, Belgian waffles had just arrived in the United States, and all I could think about was, I want one of those waffles with whipped cream and strawberries on it, but my parents said, no, we're going to go see art, and the, uh, the Vatican had brought this over, and they put it in a special uh, container so if the boat sank that the, the Pieta could be recovered. Uh, but I do remember, you know, as a nine-year-old kid, did I have any idea about aesthetics? Had I ever thought about what made art art? No. But you know what? When I saw this, I knew it was art. I knew that it showed human drama and that there was skill in workmanship here and that there was something tragic and yet beautiful in this. And I knew that this was art, even though I didn't have a clue what art actually was. Well, in the 20th century, we have different ideas about what constitutes art, and so we see some pretty radical shifts. And this is a guy named Marcel Duchamp, and uh, perhaps you've heard of him before. Uh, the thing in the upper left there is called New Descending a Staircase, and whenever I show this to uh, my classes, the, the adolescent boys are desperately trying to find the nude, uh, but it's pretty hard because it's just kind of geometric shapes. 
Above, uh, right next to that, you see the Mona Lisa, and he has uh, drawn, drawn a, a mustache on her. And he's basically just kind of going, Wah! and he's putting art back in your face, getting you to question what actually constitutes art. You know, is it okay for me to put a mustache and a beard on the Mona Lisa? And he would say yes. So what Marcel Duchamp did in 1917, you can see this, he took a, can you see what that is? What is that right there? It is a urinal, which he took off of a wall, and he signed it R. Mutt, 1917, and he entered it into an art exhibition. Now, is, is Marcel Duchamp someone who really had amazing artistic abilities, who could paint things or draw things real, realistically? Yeah, but he chose not to because he's trying to get you to question the nature of what art is. Well, he entered this into this, uh, this art exhibition, and he named it Fountain. Uh, and by the way, I'm wearing this shirt because you can go see Fountain at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, where they actually have this thing uh, behind some lucite. And I was thinking, gosh, I could actually touch this great work of art if only it wasn't behind lucite like this. Uh, but what happened is, of course, the art community was shocked, and they said, this is not art, and how dare you do this? But again, what he was basically saying is, what is art? I mean, if the nature of the universe is changing and we don't know if there's a God and things like that, then how do we know that anything is beautiful? And to me, this is beautiful. And again, he's really getting us to question our sensibilities about what actually makes something uh, beautiful in this way. Um, by the way, the Turner Foundation, uh, which is a modern art foundation, labeled this work, Fountain, the most influential artwork of the 20th century. Now, if you saw the Pieta and Fountain side by side, would you probably tend to gravitate towards one more than the other? I think so, okay? But that shows you that your sensibilities are tuned in a certain way and that we are kind of being taken out of that tuning in the world that we live in. I have a feeling like if Michelangelo had painted the Sistine Chapel with, I don't know, urinals or something like that, that the Pope would have been very mad at him for doing that. Uh, but that's what, uh, that's what Duchamp did. Next one. This is a guy named Mark Rothko, and again, when I saw his paintings at the uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, uh, I immediately, across the museum, saw one, and I was like, wow, cool, because I knew it was a Rothko, because every Rothko looks like what you're seeing. And, and again, I'm not trying to denigrate the art here, uh, because I take this stuff very seriously, and you do have ideas about horizons and transcendence and things like that, uh, but everything that Mark Rothko painted in his, his painting career looks exactly like this in various colors. Now, the reason that I brought this up here is because the one on the left, which is called White Center, sold at Sotheby's Auction House on May 15, 2007. And I just kind of want to see what you think it may be sold for. 800000 is way too low. $40 million is low. No, it's up. It's up. If you add, if you add that onto his $40 million, you get $72.8 million, and that's what it's sold for. All right? Now, again... You may say, why? Well, because we take this stuff very seriously, and this worldview has become so pervasive that people will spend $72.8 million for something like this. You may say as a parent, you know what? My 8-year-old has something like that hanging on the refrigerator right now, and if you gave me 100 bucks for it, I'd be very happy with that. But <laughs> realize that what's being said here is this worldview is we take it very, very seriously. Now, previously that had been a record for a Rothko painting, and, and by the way, Rothko died. Uh, but if you look at the one over on the other side, on the right side, which is called, curiously, Orange, Red, Yellow, uh, it sold at Christie's Auction House on May 9th, 2012. And anybody want to guess what that one was? $87 million. $87 million. Okay, now, all I want you to do as you think about this is to say, wow, we take this stuff really seriously. 
All right, and you know, you wonder, is that like a Michelangelo? Well, I would say no, but again, there is a worldview mentality behind this that drives these kinds of prices that are being paid. Next one. This is Jackson Pollock. Uh, he was also known as Jack the Dripper, uh, and again, <laughs> trying to be consistent with the idea of a chance universe in the same way that John Cage was, he would basically lay a, a canvas down on a garage floor and with various means drip paint onto the canvas and if he was smoking a cigarette and ashes fell into it, he would say, hey, that's chance, we'll leave it there. If he found some 30-weight oil over in the corner, he'd say, let's pour some of this in, that's chance, um, to the point where a lot of his do not go on display because they're, they're literally disintegrating. Uh, but Jackson Pollock's paintings routinely, David Geffen of DreamWorks owns a lot of them, they routine, routinely sell for 40 or $50 million. And again, you may not like this, but again, realize that it's an expression of the current worldview that we take very, very seriously and people will spend a lot of money for. Has anybody ever seen the Woody Allen movie Play It Against Sam? It's kind of an older one, but there's a funny scene in that where Woody Allen is out at a museum in New York City and he's basically trying to pick up women. And there is a woman standing in front of a Jackson Pollock painting. And he comes up behind her and he says, it's a, it's a very interesting Pollock. What does it say to you? And she says, I see a black hole of annihilation and death, a vortex of dark night into which we are inexorably sucked for our eternal doom. And he says, oh, that's very interesting. Uh, what are you doing tomorrow night? And she says, committing suicide. And then, and then he says, well, what about tonight? <laughs> so what you see here is that this art speaks of, again, kind of a bleak, dark, we are here by chance. If you can figure something out, good for you, because there is no common purpose that we have because we've been created in the image of a common God in this way. So, again, realize for 150 years or so, we have been swimming in this. It is no surprise at all that we grow up with this all around us and have a pretty depressed view of what life is all about because this is what is held up in front of us most of the time. Next one. I wish I could say that you could buy some understanding modern art instantly breath spray and take care of all this, uh, but what I would suggest is that when you look at art like this, you have to understand all these worldview questions that are behind these things, and that makes sense of all of this stuff, of art, of literature, of music, and all these things that are, that are rapidly changing in our age. Next one. Actions flow from worldview, and there we have a tree. And uh, if you look at a tree, you tend to see the leaves, first of all, which are kind of like the actions of people. I suppose if you went back to the, uh, the, uh, the trunk of the tree, that would be the values of people. But values basically come from worldview, which are the roots of the tree. And John, I think, will probably talk more about this uh, next week in the, uh, the talk that he gives. But we have to understand that when you think this way, that it actually has real consequences in the world. And let's look at a couple of those. On September 11th, when this happened, I think we were kind of shocked uh, to learn about radical Islam. Uh, but you have to realize that all these people were willing to commit suicide because they believed their worldview. They believed that if they killed the infidel, the Jew, the Christian, the non-Muslim, that they were immediately, uh, you know, they went to paradise and were entertained for eternity by the, the virgins that would attend to them. And again, they did this kind of thing because they passionately believed their worldview because these, these ideas have real consequences that play out in the real world. Next one. This is Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, and I think this kind of shooting has become so common that we, we almost don't pay attention to it. But when Columbine High School happened, 
uh, back in the 90s, I think everyone was shocked. And we were like, what can we do to make this not happen again? And we wanted to legislate against guns, or we wanted to say there needs to be more sensitivity training, and we need to stop bullying and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that those are bad ideas, but what I want to suggest to you is that Dylan and Klebold were classic products of the age that we live in. And if you go to the next slide, I'll give an example of this. This is something that I put together for my own students that basically shows how we answer these five worldview questions. On the right-hand side, you have the biblical answer to these things. On the left-hand side, you see how the modern age tends to answer these things. So what is really real? Well, physical stuff is real. What's a human being? We're a highly evolved electrochemical machine. What happens when we die? We die. Um, how do we know what's right and wrong? Well, I don't know. Is there really right and wrong? Everybody thinks all kinds of different things, right? And then finally, what are we here for? Well, it's a chance universe, so you know we don't really have any real purpose. And if you've grown up thinking like that, and I know I did, I mean, I really did read a lot of this literature and it really disturbed me, um, you know, you start behaving that way and thinking that way and living out life that way. And a lot of what we see in the culture at large is just the effect of this way of thinking writ large on the entire culture, all right? And uh, we, we believe these things because they're held in front of us all the time. I want to suggest to you that what Dylan and Klebold and Eric Harris thought is probably something like this. They believe that, hey, if we go in and kill a bunch of people and put a gun to our heads, well, first of all, we're killing people, but are they really any different from killing a coyote or a worm? Because, you know, human beings are just more highly evolved. And by the way, is there really right or wrong? I don't think so. And by the way, when I die, I just die because there really is no God or anything like that. So, you know, what's the big deal? If I do this and I put a bullet in my head, it's all over and, you know, I'm, I got away with it. Well, I want to suggest to you that these, these questions are so important and that you have to realize, as soon as Dylan and Eric did this, they escorted themselves into the very presence of a holy and loving God who looked at them and said, Dylan, Eric, wrong, 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 wrong. You're wrong on all of these. You missed it. You have a completely wrong worldview. You're not lining up with reality as I've made it. So I want to suggest to you that these questions are very, very important, and we need to make sure that we're dealing with them very seriously. Next one. Worldviews fall into one of four categories. Uh, you do not need to go out and learn, okay, let's start with agnosticism, and then I'll finish with Zoroastrianism. You do not have to go A through Z. They basically fall into four, four categories, theism, atheism, polytheism, and pantheism. They're all mutually exclusive. They all can't be true at the same time. Uh, theism basically means there is one God, and there are three expressions of theism in the world today. They are what? Christianity. Christianity. Islam. Islam. And Judaism, okay? And they all have a slightly different idea about the nature of this one God, but they are all theistic in the sense that they would say God, God is one. Atheism is from the Greek prefix a, apart from. So this means apart from God, there is no God. Um, this could be something that is kind of like a soft uh, ag uh, atheistic science, like like Carl Sagan, who says the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be, even though he never really comes out very boldly and says, hey, I'm an atheist too. He just kind of says it scientifically as if there really isn't anything besides uh, the physical world. Um, and then you probably know some atheists who are more hardcore and you know, kind of antagonistic to you about these things because they're out there too. Polytheism is the idea that there are many gods. This could be like the Greek pantheon of gods. 
Um, or this could also be like Mormonism, where they believe that if you do the Mormon thing and you wear the holy underwear and all that, that someday you will have your own little planet to be God over because God was once a man as we are and has now ascended to this God level. So there's some very polytheistic ideas uh, in, uh, in Mormonism. Finally, pantheism is uh, more Eastern. This is uh, Buddhism. This is Hinduism. This is the idea of a force of life that is in all living things. Uh, you know, the birds are God, the bees are God, I'm God, you're God. Uh, and again, we get this in very subtle ways. It may be, you know, that we got a large dose of this in Star Wars. And if you remember when uh, in the very first episode, the first three, which really are the best ones, you know it. They're the best ones. All right. I mean, think of the second three. When you have lines like, hold me, Obi-Wan, hold me like you did by the lake at Naboo, you know that this is not a good movie. Anyway, uh, so back to this. You may remember in the first one when we're trying to take out the Death Star, all right? And uh, Luke is in his little X-Wing fighter or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, they, they, there's, a, there's a tracking computer that will help him get into that little gully and take out the Death Star if he takes that sweet spot and makes the right shot. Well, you remember that he pushes the tracking computer away? And they say, Luke, you pushed away the tracking computer. What are you doing? And then you hear the voice of Obi-Wan, and he says, Luke, feel the force. It's all around you. And then he kind of feels the force, and he goes down into that little gully, and he takes that sweet shot, and he destroys the Death Star. And there you have pantheism saving the universe. And you're like, yay, pantheism wins. All right, so these are the subtle ways that these things influence us like that. All right. Do you know what the, uh, what the Buddhist said to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything? All right. Next one, Chris. <laughs> We're almost done here. The truth bears inspection. The truth bears inspection. Jesus said this in, in John 8.31, you know, that truth makes us free. The amazing thing when you show the Truman Show to a bunch of kids is that when Truman starts to figure out what's true and he goes toward the outside of the dome that he's living in, everybody's like, yay, Truman, because he's figuring out what's true. And we know that truth is good for us. We know this, okay, inherently in the center of our being. But we must inspect it, and we cannot be afraid of examining it closely. Go ahead, Chris. This is a few years back when Bush was running for his second term. And I don't know about you, but when I saw this particular headline, Space Aliens Back Bush for President, I was like, wait, is this true? Did this really happen? Are the space aliens supporting Bush? Because, wow, he really is a shoe in if that's true. Uh, truth is a, a, a hard thing to know sometimes. And maybe you know this weekly world news. You hit the next one, Chris. Unfortunately, the, uh, the magazine has gone under, which is unfortunate because whenever I was checking out of Fry's or Safeway, I loved to read the headlines, which were often very curiously quasi-Christian. All right? And I was never sure exactly why that was. I mean, here are some of these. We found Jesus' sandals, new Dead Sea Scroll prophecies, and my favorite, of course, Noah's Ark found on Mars. Yeah, which, and by the way, you should be very proud because I know in this particular issue it said that Noah's Ark was found on Mars, and they had pictures of this in conjunction with the University of Arizona Planetary Sciences Department, your own alma mater, all right? I'm sure you feel very proud about this. I don't know if they sued or whether you just kind of leave stuff like this alone or what, uh, but yeah, they said Noah's Ark was found on Mars. Now, my question was always, okay, do they think that Christians are believe this stuff? Do they think that we're kind of stupid people and that maybe we're going to buy this because it sounds kind of vaguely religious or whatever? And I'm not real sure. Uh, perhaps they do think we are people who just have faith. We don't have reasons for thinking anything. We just have faith. Um, but let's go to the next one. 
This is a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge, um, who was a very skeptical, caustic uh, kind of, um, oh, I, I don't want to say nasty, but he was the, he was the editor of a, of a, a magazine, a uh, satirical magazine in England called Punch. And he, most of his life, was uh, not a believer, very agnostic. And when he was in his 70s, he sat down and started reading the Gospels, and he got saved. And he's like, wow, this is true stuff. Um, and he wrote this amazing quote right here. It's one of the fantasies of the 20th century that believers, that's you and me, are credulous people, sentimental people, and that you have to be a materialist and a secularist and a humanist to have a skeptical mind. Of course, exactly the opposite is true. It is a believer who can be astringent and skeptical. Sometimes when I talk with students, they feel like, you know, Mr. Winslow, I can't question things because then God will say that I have doubt and then I don't have faith. And so I just got to believe this stuff no matter what. And I said, you know, you have a God who is the very author of truth. He wants you to believe in him and to trust in him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's not afraid of your questions. He knows the depth of the questions you have more than you do. So do not be afraid to ask the hard questions. And at Worldview Academy, um, this, this kind of lead-off talk that I'm giving right now, we use this as an opportunity to say, ask the hard questions of yourself, of others, of God. He is not afraid of these things. He's the very author of truth. If you have a faith that you have assumed because your parents gave it to you, which is kind of naturally how that happens, but you're making it your own, but you don't quite get this idea or you don't quite understand this, do not be afraid to ask the question. You, of all people, can be most skeptical because you have a God who is the very author of truth. So do not be afraid of asking the hard questions. Next one. God expects us to think in terms of worldview. Double black diamonds mean what? Difficult on what? On a ski slope. I did not know this when I learned how to ski at Sugarbush in Vermont. Um, I spent the day, I spent $35 to learn how to hop, hop, hop and stop on a bunny slope and then on a, like a rope toe where I fell off every time I went up it. Because I had paid $35 or $40 for a lift ticket so I could go on the rope toe, I thought I want to go to the top of the mountain at the end of the day and ski down because I paid my money for this. Not knowing in Vermont that at the end of the day at, you know, 5 o'clock, what had been snow is basically now an ice sheet, all right? Then I encountered this, not knowing what this was, and so I immediately with my friends skied off down to this to find all these lumpy, bumpy things all over the place, um, which were moguls, and I didn't know what you were supposed to do with them. And I thought, why are, how do you ski on these bumps like this? Um, and embarrassingly, after, you know, I don't know, about 10 traverses to one side falling over, I took off my skis and walked I don't know, three-quarters of a mile down the mountain because I couldn't ski down. But I didn't know what this meant, okay? And God expects us to think in terms of worldview. This means that, that God is the author of reality, okay? And again, we're in this tension where there is truth that often comes at us and there are lies that often come at us. And we know, according to the wisdom literature of the Bible, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what that basically means is if you line up with the way that God has made reality, that's going to be good for you. And if you don't, it's not going to be good for you. Now, as simple as that is to understand, clearly many people do not understand this. 
Okay? So God wants us to think in terms of worldview, and what this means is it's not an easy thing to do. It's very difficult. We have to be discerning, but if you line up with the way that God has made reality and you go in that course, it is not necessarily going to be an easy life, but it's going to be one heck of a ride because it's what God has made, and it's the life that he has for you. So we need to understand that we need to Think hard about these things and think well and then line up with reality because it's good for us and truth sets us free. Next one, Chris. This is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you probably know this because this is a pretty well-quoted well passage. Is this, they're talking about the nature of Aslan. And Lucy says, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So again, what we would suggest is that if you line up with God and the nature of his reality, your life isn't going to be safe, but it is going to be good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who is there. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you speak to us and that you have made us as people who can know you and have communion with you and walk with you in the cool of the garden. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, prompt us and help us to think more deeply about these things and that you would help us to have the blessings of truth that you want us to have uh, by knowing these things. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.